The following is not intended to provide direct medical, psychiatric, or substance use treatment advice and is not a substitute for evaluation and treatment by a healthcare professional. And I think one thing we, we're all trying to do is reduce the amount of stigma around seeking treatment and around the disease in general. And that's actually part of harm reduction as well as a part of treatment. Hello, I'm Dr. Ed Bellotti, and this is Psyched for Mental Health, empowering you with trustworthy information about modern psychiatry. This podcast is a companion to webshrink.com, the platform for seekers and providers of mental health care. America's opioid epidemic is now in a third phase, dominated by the powerful and dangerous drug fentanyl, but not the pharmaceutical kind of fentanyl. Instead, people are dying of overdoses from illicitly manufactured fentanyl. The drug is deadly, about 50 times more potent than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. It can be found in a liquid or a powder form. Illicitly manufactured fentanyl is known by several street names like Apache, Dance Fever, and perhaps the two most appropriate names, Murder 8 and Poison. The drug crept into the illicit drug market in the United States in the past few years and is often mixed with other drugs like heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine and pressed into pills made to look frighteningly similar to pharmaceutical products. Needless to say, this is extremely dangerous. Estimates are that around 150 people are dying daily from overdoses. What is it about opiates that makes them so powerfully addictive that people and even animals will seek them out in spite of their destructive and deadly effects? People with opiate use disorders will seem to give up everything just to get more of the drug. Mothers may leave their babies in unsafe situations to get another dose. It's been demonstrated over and over that even laboratory animals will pass up on food and ultimately starve to death preferring another dose of opiate to a meal. All of this seems counter to survival, and it makes me wonder how opiates, the natural forms of which are chemicals that are made inside of a plant, how can they seem to hijack the brain and cause people to do things that ultimately can lead to their own demise, and often do, sadly. My guest is Dr. James Berry, a board-certified family medicine physician with decades of experience treating addiction and substance use disorders. Dr. Berry is a graduate of Temple University School of Medicine and worked for many years at the former Mercy Recovery Center, which was once the largest addiction treatment facility in the state of Maine. Dr. Berry will help us shed some light on questions like, what is an opiate in the first place? What's the difference between an opiate and an opioid, these terms we hear used interchangeably? Why do some people become addicted and others don't? What does it look like when someone's intoxicated on opiates? And what does opiate withdrawal look like? What's the difference between drugs like oxycodone, heroin, and fentanyl? How are the disorders treated? What is buprenorphine naloxone? What's methadone? How are they different? And how are they used to treat the disorder? So let's get started. Dr. Barry, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ed. Can you tell us a little about your background and how you got into the field of addiction? I'm uh, trained as a uh, primary care physician. I worked in family practice in rural Maine for many, many years and got into addiction because 
when you're in rural family practice, uh, the, the medical field is kind of divided up. I mean, you're a team physician, a coroner, the addiction person left, and I kind of fell into it in 1990. And it gradually consumed more of my life until uh, I became full-time addiction at Mercy Recovery Center here in Portland about oh, wow, 2008. I've been working full-time, although slowing down now, I prepare to retire. Oh, good for you. Where did you do your medical training? I did uh, MD training at Temple University and postgraduate University of Arkansas and University of Southern California. All right, so today we're going to be talking about opiates. You know, for the past couple of years, it's been somewhat overshadowed by the COVID pandemic. I would like to discuss with you today some more details about opiates and addiction, what they are, what causes it, and what can be done to help, and what kind of treatments we can offer people and prevent some of this tragedy that's really gone out of control. Is there a difference between an opiate and an opioid? Okay, the, the original definition of opiate is pretty narrow. It's the the um, chemical that's isolated from a certain species of poppy plant attaches to certain receptors in the brain, opioid receptors. Better living through chemistry, the opiates have been manipulated and made more potent with fewer side effects, more pure to the point where often they can be synthesized without using the opium from the poppy uh, and you get the similar chemistry at the end. When you do this, it's, they, the name has changed from opiate to opioid. However, in practice, these terms are often thrown around interchangeably, and I don't think we need to worry too much about that distinction. That's, that is interesting information, though, and I, and I agree with you. I think the terms are often um, interchanged and thrown around. I've heard it called the opiate epidemic. I've heard it called the opioid epidemic and so on. So I just wanted to clarify that. So you're saying opiates are in its most basic form. Opiate is natural from the plant, derived from the plant, and an opioid is synthetic. So many people got started with opioids because of either an injury or a surgery, some medical condition that led to pain, and the pain was treated with prescription opioids. And then they noticed that something about this medication that they were taking for pain also had other effects like, you know, improved mood, made them feel better, took away some maybe emotional or psychic pain as well. They didn't necessarily need it medically and eventually becoming dependent on it. While other people will take a dose of uh, pain medicine and say, oh, I don't like this. I don't like how it makes me yeah. feel. I'm, uh, I'm not even going to take it. I'll just use some acetaminophen or something like that for my pain. Why do some people get addicted and others don't? Do we know? I think we, we, we do know. And I think the short answer is that it's a genetic and it's the wiring of the brain is determined what some people are susceptible to addiction transmitters, chemicals in the addiction part of the brain, the dopamine reward pathway that have to be there for addiction to occur. I think this, you might have read about delta thos B, and there's some others too. About half the people in the old days around World War II smoked, at least socially. Then when we found out cigarettes were bad for us, fewer people started, most people quit. And we're down to around 17%. So these 17% are probably represent the people that have addiction propensity. On the other side, most people couldn't get addicted to opiates even if they wanted to, but a substantial minority can. 
And that doesn't mean everyone with a gene gets addicted. I mean, most of us, even with a gene or addiction or genes, have a life, have things that give us satisfaction and, and keep us interested. In. So, but I think the last, the last thing you said is very interesting because what you're saying is that in addition to the genetic, the underlying genetic propensity, which is clear and established, there's also a psychosocial component. So people who have increased risk of addiction probably also have some other risk factors. And it's some kind of interplay between the underlying genetics and the psychosocial piece, which really makes it not much different from any other mental illness that we deal with in psychiatry. So what does opiate intoxication look like when someone is high on heroin? What, what, is, what is happening physiologically and what are they experiencing? The person who's starting out on heroin, it triggers the, uh, the part of the brain called the dopamine reward pathway, the part that makes us motivated, makes us feel good, gives us pleasure and then the aspects of life that are important, food and going to work, hobbies, sex, beauty, what stimulates it, hijacks that pathway, makes a person feel satisfied and good without anything positive really happening, and makes them also want to repeat the experience. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, over, or maybe fortunately, over time, that feeling gets attenuated, and that leads to the high, the good feeling being attenuated. Pretty soon, all too soon, the person is taking these drugs to avoid the feeling of withdrawal. Once the brain is adapted and attenuated, it kind of needs the presence of the opioid to be normal. I see. So the brain is exposed to this and it's it feels good, but it's being triggered to a degree that's kind of off the scale. It's now adapted to having that drug around. So if the drug is absent, then the person starts to feel sick. Yeah, and these people are addicted to heroin. That's usually what they'll tell you. They don't talk quite as much about the high. There may be a little bit of a high, but it's only if they take large amounts. I should add that the reason, why are these substances there in the first place? They are a poison. They're in the plant because they're poisoning what eats the plant, usually insects, sometimes other animals. So they're designed as poisons, and the brain sees them the way they're designed. That's fascinating to me. It's always been fascinating to me how a plant can generate a chemical that fits into a receptor in our brains as human beings. We're all biological organisms on this planet and we've all sort of evolved side by side and the plant's trying to protect itself and survive and so are we. I, I should have to tell all kinds of stories about this, but I grew up in Ohio on a farm and there was a lot of wild nightshade, but it's poisonous and the and animals don't eat it. And so cows being not all that smart would eat it and they call it loco weed and you could tell because the cows would stagger around and fall <laughs> over. And then what uh, was it? How toxic was it? Would, would the, the cow would wear off and then the cow would be okay? Or yeah, I'd be okay. I don't know how addictive it was to the cow. I'm, I'm <laughs> curious about that. Interesting. So all the talk lately is about fentanyl. Fentanyl seems to be the drug that is most pervasive on the streets. Can you just distinguish uh, a little bit about fentanyl? I understand that it's a lot more potent than heroin. So the, the, the fentanyl came onto the street around 2015, 2016, and we saw an immediate spike in deaths. We get most of our these street drugs from Mexico, and it was heroin in the old days, and fentanyl was about 50 times more potent, so that pretty much replaced heroin. So we saw three or four years ago less heroin. Now I think I saw one 
urine test that might have had heroin in it last week. It's the first time I've seen it for many months. Seen any? It's all fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl. And it's far more dangerous. Yeah, because, because of that, that, potency, that potency, right? which makes it easier to ship and sell and make, also makes it more dangerous. It has to be mixed properly to get a safe dose. And even is mixed properly, you get someone who's who's not tolerant to it and not used to it and takes what might be a normal dose for an addict might put someone in an overdose situation if they're not used to it. So if people uh, are abstinent from using the drug for a, for a period of time, the brain then normalizes back to the way it would have responded before it had adapted to being exposed to the opiates. And so if they go back now, they're released from prison, they go back to the street and they think, well, this is how much I used to use in order to get high. So they go and use that, but now that's enough to potentially kill them. Yes. And that's and that same thing, people getting out of treatment facilities, particularly if they're residential facilities, the same thing happens, even though they're, they're cautioned that, that that might happen, that their, their brain is, uh, we say, naive to the opiates. Wow. So the increased presence of fentanyl may account for some of the rise in overdose deaths. Probably does. It accounts for nearly all the rise in overdose deaths. There are nearly always is fentanyl present. About half the time, there's another drug class present too, either stimulants or sedatives, and it's a combination effect. But fentanyl always has a role. So you mentioned treatment programs. Can you say a little about what treatment for opiate addiction looks like? What are the best ways to treat this disorder? Okay, so if you look at the ways we treat addiction in general, whether it's cigarettes or stimulants or opioids, I think treatment falls into several categories. One is medication, and then there are behavioral or counseling-based treatments, and then more socially-based treatment, because a lot of addiction is related to being in a social network and the best example of that are the support groups, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, which provide some counseling function as well, but they're primarily a social treatment. Then probably the fourth layer of treatment is what almost fails residential-based treatment. We probably prefer to have the person in the community when we're treating them for what I already mentioned, that when you get out of treatment, there's a kind of a risky period of readjustment to the community. Medication for opioids almost for vast majority of people needs to be part of the treatment at least for a time. So the medication medications that are used are opioids themselves. In the United States, methadone and buprenorphine, or the, known by the brand name Suboxone. And the problem is that if you're on opioids, these very potent opioids, and there's a lot of adaptation in the brain, as we mentioned, you're on for any length of time, that is becomes harder and harder to reverse by just stopping the opioid. So it's necessary to keep those receptors occupied. Use these other modalities too, but you, you need to use a, a drug as well, prescription drug. So the, what's the difference between methadone, which has been around for decades, right? I think since the 50s? Oh, goodness. Yeah, 50 years. <laughs> what's the difference between that and Suboxone and you know, buprenorphine, naloxone? Suboxone brand name is a combination buprenorphine and naloxone. How are they different? So methadone, as, as you mentioned, Ed, has been around the longest and has been fairly successful. But the main problem with it was that it was not all that safe. And people were able to overdose on that. People would take methadone home. 
someone else to get into it an overdose on a suboxone or buprenorphine which has been out in the on the shelves of hospitals pharmacies for a long time was looked at in the late 80s and early 90s as an alternative and as the advantages of being even longer acting being safer and harder to overdose on being a much more effective blocker of the opiate receptor so relatively lower doses could be given block that receptor so people who took other opioids would not get an effect from them. So um, it can be given once a day and um, very hard to overdose on. So it's been an um, easier, safer drug to use. People generally don't take it to get high, um, don't get over sedated from it, stay on it for a long period of time and function quite normally, which is not to say that you need don't need to access these other modes of treatment you do because there's other life dysfunctions that go on besides once you've taken the drug for a long time that need to be fixed. Right. As a psychiatrist, I do a lot of work with co-occurring disorders, so a mental health disorder and a substance use disorder occurring at the same time. And it's infinitely clear to me that they are intimately related and not always, usually not even separate things. So what you're saying then is we, we give a prescription medication to bind to those receptors so that other uh, opiates like fentanyl and heroin, et cetera, won't. In other words, the, the buprenorphine holds on more tightly to the receptor than say fentanyl. Is that correct? Yes, it's, it holds on. In fact, it holds on so tightly that if we give it to people on fentanyl, it kicks the fentanyl off and actually throws people into withdrawal for a few, few days. Interesting. So we've learned how to wrestle with that in the last couple of years. So you give them the prescription, but then also the other modalities such as, well, addressing any co-occurring depression, anxiety, or other mental health disorder, treating that possibly with other medication or psychotherapy or both. And that, that whole combination sets up a program for maximizing the chances of a, of a successful recovery. Before we go on to talk about harm reduction, I just want to bring up the subject of treating an overdose. So there's, there's a lot of talk past couple of years about making naloxone available to the police or to the public to be able to administer in the event of a potentially lethal overdose. Can you tell us about how naloxone works and what that would look like? So naloxone is an opiate blocker. So it's similar to the blocking effect we talked about the buprenorphine, except it's very quick and kicks the um, fentanyl or other opioid off the receptor. So this instantly throws them into, gets rid of the opioid, throws them into withdrawal. Unfortunately, it's, it's rather short acting, so they, preferably the patient needs medical attention. At that point, it's been very effective. We don't think of overdose as such a lethal phenomenon as we used to. It used to seem like every other overdose, the person passed away. But now most people, if I take a history, they say, well, I've had naloxone once or twice. Really speaks to the power of this addiction that someone who's been through that even more than once would continue to go back and use again. And that that isn't, at that point, it's, it certainly is not a choice for someone to just will themselves to never pick up and use again is, is not always an option. And that's why a lot of these other modalities need to be uh, implemented, right? Yes, I think people, it is a motivation for treatment. I see people come into treatment having overdosed and that scared them, but it's not enough because as you say, the 
the urge to use that even overrides the desire to stay alive. In spite of all of these modalities and treatments that we have, some people are going to use substances and we're not going to be able to completely stop that. It seems like people always will be seeking out some kind of mind-altering substance. And so given the fact that a, a percentage of people have this propensity to become addicted, the concept of harm reduction comes about as a way of, if you're not going to be able to stop using, at least we can minimize the risk and the harm caused by it. So can you tell us, you know, your take on that? The best example of harm reduction is the use of uh, rescue naloxone. So that's one of many examples. Another example we think of is the use of a seatbelt to prevent deaths in car. You're, you're, not, you're not decreasing reckless driving or alcohol-related driving or anything, but you are preventing deaths. Harm reduction is something that there are there's so many aspects, so many things, opportunities to intervene. And I could just run through a list because I won't get to talk about them all. The needle exchanges, um, safe injection sites, housing first, um, because a lot of addiction has been aggravated by homelessness and, and inadequate safe places to live. And then, and then downside, what you've kind of got to watch for is harm reduction initiatives that are related to decreasing the availability of the drug, you have to be very careful because that can backfire. And I think one thing we, we're all trying to do is reduce the amount of stigma around seeking treatment and around the disease in general. And that's actually part of harm reduction as well as a part of treatment. There's a lot of patients that they get on into treatment and particularly they get on to Suboxone and they say, well, that's just another opioid. You're trading one addiction for another. And they go into pharmacies and they get stigmatized right there in the pharmacy. And I'm always right, talking right. to pharmacists. And this one, I thought I had everything nailed down. And he goes in and gets the hard, third degree from the part. And it turned out to be a pharmacy assistant who was on the regular pharmacist was on lunch break. So they pulled someone from the upfront register who didn't wasn't trained at all and and, and, and being nice to people and not stigmatizing people. Well. Dr. Jim Berry, thank you so much for joining me today. And I think this was a very insightful discussion. Good luck with your semi-retirement. I hope you're able to make the most of that. And if you're like most of us, though, you're probably still working too hard. <laughs> oh, thank you, Dr. Bellotti. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a companion to webshrink.com. Visit webshrink.com where you'll find original, trustworthy, and authoritative content to help you find the answers you need about mental health and addiction. Mental health professionals and facilities list yourself in WebShrink's provider directory. Go to webshrink.com and click list your practice. The Psych for Mental Health podcast was written and produced by Dr. Ed Bellotti. Co-production and sound editing by Nathan Tower and Aaron Devereaux at Nonsensible Productions in Portland, Maine.